It's a beautiful day out. Uh, it was a wonderful day yesterday at the service, although I have to make a clarification that you don't think your city interim pastor is totally out to lunch. The reference to herding cats yesterday comes from a Super Bowl commercial about a decade ago. So that was the reference that it's hard to herd cats and sometimes it's hard to herd people. And uh, so I'm not totally out to lunch. Okay, just a reference because I had a few people, you sure you didn't mean cattle? Um, no, I'm, I meant cats. Cattle are a little bit smarter. <laughs> so, last week, we left Jonah once again wishing he was dead. Jonah had zero compassion towards the Ninevites. They were lost, and he wasn't interested. Jonah chapter 4, verse 3, we read this. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now, this is the second time that Jonah has wished he wasn't alive. Jonah was in full pout mode here. He did not get his way. So, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. You'll recall the first time Jonah said that, that he wanted to die, it was right after the Lord had caught up to him on a ship bound for Tarsus. Uh, the, the prophet of God was, was asked to go to Nineveh, and he bolted in the other direction to Joppa. Then he headed down into the hull of his ship, set sail to Spain, The Lord then hurled a great wind across the Mediterranean at the ship. And the the sailors cast lots to discover Jonah, who had just recently joined joined them because he was napping below deck. Well, that he was responsible for the storm. Well, Jonah's answer, Jonah's solution to the dilemma was, well, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard and all your problems will be solved. Our mariners were more concerned with the life of our prophet than our prophet was for all the lives of Ninevites, of all the Ninevites. So they attempt to row to shore. And and, and when that tactic failed, they reluctantly agree to toss Jonah overboard. Well, Jonah has a, a change of heart as he sinks into his watery grave and he calls out to the Lord, And and an appointed fish then rescues him. And and while Jonah prays to the Lord, giving him thanksgiving for the rescue, as Jonah's rescue is being orchestrated, the sailors recognize that Israel's God is, is the true God and begin to offer sacrifices. And they begin to worship him. Well, three days later, Jonah's spewed ashore and recommissioned to go to Nineveh. And reluctantly, the prophet goes and he enters the city uttering a a very, very short message. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And to everyone's amazement, the people and even the king respond to the message. They repent and they go before the Lord asking for mercy. And God relents and Nineveh is spared. As pleased as the Lord was with their repentance, Jonah was displeased. 
He was furious. Why? Well, his reasoning is very flawed. See, all the qualities that would draw most people to to praise the Lord, well, Jonah was upset about. From chapter 4 in Jonah, I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. And this is exactly where we picked Jonah up this morning. Pouting because God is, is gracious, God is merciful, God is slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Because of this, Jonah wants to die. And that's where we left him last week. So before we pick up where Jonah is this week, and before we pick up on God's response to Jonah, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning, but we thank you for the opportunity to open up to the book of Jonah. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read the words that were penned so many years ago that can still speak to our heart. Father, this morning we ask that you'll help us to push aside the worries, the concerns of the past week and of the present week to come. To look into our own lives to look into how we respond to your love and your grace and your compassion and your mercy for all people. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's, it's right about here that I thought, Jonah, you really should be thankful that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I know we have some business owners here this morning, and we have people that are past business owners. And and I can't keep track of everybody's job, but I'm sure some of you have or are managers and have been in charge of people. I have two, and one of the first thoughts that came to my mind as I read this was, well, Jonah, don't let the door hit you on the way out. You're fired. I, I I, I think of myself as a patient man But this is becoming a little ridiculous, how Jonah reacts to all this. But but look at God's response. Picking up in Jonah chapter 4, verse 4, if you're not there already. Jonah chapter 4, verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Or that word angry, incensed or furious. How, How calm is that? Is it right for you to be angry about this? Jay Scarler, a Canadian theologian, sums it up this way. Is it right to be angry that the same mercy and grace you yourself have received from the Lord is shown to other people? Let me read that again, because I think that's great. Is it right to be angry that the same mercy and grace you yourself have received from the Lord is shown to other people. If we as Christians could only begin to comprehend and live out this attitude shown by God. I I recently read a piece, and it, it might or might not be true, but it works well as an illustration here. And it was concerning Queen Elizabeth as a little girl. And when she and Margaret would go to a party, the story says that the Queen Mother would remind them, remember... Royal children, royal manners. Keep that in mind. Except, 
We are the royal children. Children of the heavenly king. It's you and I that should remember as we go about life to have royal manners. Now, now follow me as I piece this together. Love is a key aspect of the covenant, the old covenant. In Leviticus 19.18, we read this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And, And just a few verses later, this concept of who your neighbor is is expanded on. Verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And the meaning of neighbor is further clarified and expanded by Christ in the New Testament. The Lord never intended neighbor to be narrowly interpreted. Not, not so much as it was in the Old Testament times. They, they limited their interpretation of, well, I must love fellow Israelites. But as for the rest of the world, well, it's kind of optional, isn't it? Listen to Christ's definition of neighbor from Matthew chapter 22, 35 through 40. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments depend all, depend all the law and the prophets. We're to love our neighbor. And you'll recall the parable, the gentleman who was beaten and left at the side of the road. And as people went by him, the first person that went by him walked to the other side. And then another religious leader came and he walked to the other side. And finally, a Samaritan, a half-Jew, somebody considered alien and an enemy, stops and he helps them. So who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is very broad. Our neighbor is all those that we live with. All the Old Testament law, which represents who God is, is summed up in these two short commands from Matthew 22. Love God, love people. See, keeping the moral law of the Old Covenant is an expression of love for others. When we keep the moral law of the Old Testament, we begin to express love for others. Our ability to love or lack thereof indicates to whom we belong to. Who is our master? Loving others is an indication of loyalty to Christ. It's an indication of being a true disciple that you can love. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
there is an expectation here that the love shown by God to us is expressed to others, believer and non-believer alike. Last week, we asked the question, how much, do you know how much God loves you? And if you truly understood the depth to which God has shown His love towards us in Christ Jesus, then we would be willing to submit, we would be willing to adopt His ways. Our hearts would be merciful, compassionate, we would be slow to anger and filled with his has said, his loving kindness towards others. His heartbeat for the lost in this world would be our heartbeat. It would be our great desire to see others experience grace and mercy, the same grace and mercy that was given to us. See, a sign of, a, of Christian maturity is a desire for friends, families, neighbors, And yes, even enemies, to know the joy of God's kindness, His loving grace, as expressed in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That others would know all that the cross means and come to repentance and come to God. This grace has been freely given to us, and we should freely give it to others. Jonah, rather than freely share, wanted judgment for the Ninevites, not grace. How cold must his heart be? How cold must his heart be toward God to desire judgment rather than repentance? rather than expressing a love so others might have the joy of knowing God. This morning, the question is, is is your heart warm toward the things of the Lord? Do you have a desire to live by those royal manners? Or is it like Jonah, and it's growing cold towards others, cold towards those who don't know Christ? Once again, The Lord's patience is amazing. Look at Jonah's response to this. Uh, Look at God's response to Jonah's answer to this question. Down in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah doesn't answer the question. Jonah's communicating with God, and then he turns and he walks away. He walks to the east. He does never answer that question. Why to the east? Well, he walks to the east, he makes his shelter, but why to the east? I did a little study of some maps around present-day Mosul. And east of Mosul by a little bit is a mountainous area. It's elevated, it's over the city, it's, it's a safe distance to watch things from. Likely Jonah had images of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the elevation gave him a good view and the distance kept him away from the action. However, the Lord chose not to destroy the city. Jonah's course of action here is very odd. 
See, in the first three verses of chapter 4, they indicate Jonah knew God wasn't going to destroy the city. Presumably, the Lord had told him. But Jonah still leaves as the countdown to day 40 nears. Jonah refuses to believe what would happen. And he makes his way outside of the city because from his perspective, well, the Ninevites deserved to be destroyed. And now he stubbornly sits and waits to see what will happen. Or perhaps he thought maybe his words could persuade God to relent again and to destroy Nineveh after all. Maybe his anticipation was joy would come in the morning and God would send fire and brimstone. I cannot continually help but go back and point out the Lord's patience once more. God had shown mercy to the sinful pagans in Nineveh. And now God's pursuing his prophet who needed to repent too. God's response, his pursuit... Next comes in the form of an object lesson. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And went, and went But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Now, don't get caught up on which type of plant it is. I'm not sure why people do that. But it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the Lord caused this plant to grow. God saw Jonah's distress and his discomfort, and he provided shade for him. Undeserved as it was, the shade from the plant what was a better than any comfort that the booth Jonah had built provided. I remember bailing as a kid, and whether it was hay or straw, depending, in, in July and August. And on those real hot days, after a little while, we'd pull the wagon alongside of the, the field underneath one of the big oak or maple trees there. And just the temperature drop and the feeling to be in the shade and, and that nice sip of cool water as we sat off from, from bailing for a while. That feeling is just stamped on my brain. I can, when I think about it today, it's just like, like that iced tea commercial. It's just nice. And, and I don't know if Jonah had cold water to, to sip on, but he was sitting in the shade, and Jonah was pleased with the plant. Before looking at verse 7 again, I want to note the irony found here. There's a play on words. It's in comparing in the the text. If you compare the text, verse 7, which we just read, back to chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 1. See, the Ninevites were rescued from disaster, misery, discomfort. Choose your word. And that same Hebrew word is found in chapter 4, verse 7. But when the Ninevites were saved from their discomfort, Jonah was exceedingly displeased at the reprieve given to them. But when when Jonah is rescued from his discomfort and mercy and misery and disaster and and the plant grows up, well, well, Jonah is exceedingly pleased and glad. 
Hypocrisy abounds here. The point is of the object lesson is found in verse 7. But dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. And God wasn't done yet. As He appointed a worm to take away the undeserved plant. And, and, and God in the morning appoints a scorching east wind. And the writer of Jonah purposely points this out to us. He wants the, the reader to understand the obvious. God is sovereign. And in God's sovereignty, he goes after Jonah, but Jonah continually goes his own way. And God continually pursues Jonah, giving him opportunity after opportunity to respond to God. It's often said that there's tension in truth. Well, we see God's sovereignty fully on display here. God does not violate Jonah's responsibility to respond. Look at how God has worked in Jonah's life to this point. When Jonah ran, God let him go, and then he hurled the wind against the boat that he was in. Then he caused the lot to fall on Jonah to point out that he was the one in air. And then when Jonah hit the water, he calmed the sea. And then God appointed a fish. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish puked Jonah up on the shore. And then God appointed a plant. And then he appointed a worm, and then he appointed the wind. See, God's sovereignty orchestrates all that's happening around Jonah. And Jonah fails to respond. He continually disobeys. In in verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And when he asked that he might die, And said, it's better for me to die than to live. There we are again, back to wanting to die. As as I read this verse, and I thought of Jonah's response, I couldn't help but think of another character with the J in their name. That was Job. And Job's response to the losses in his life. And they were more than just a plant. Let me review them for you. Job's oxen and donkeys were stolen in a raid. In all his servants were murdered, but one. Fire from heaven fell and consumed both Job's sheep and shepherds, but one. Another raiding party steals Job's camels and kills his servants, but one. And finally, while feasting at the oldest brother's home, a wind comes along and all of Job, and the house collapses and all his children are killed. But one gets away. Listen as I read Job's response to such tragedy. And, and that word hardly can begin to describe what Job was going through and all that had happened to him and how he must have felt and how he must have grieved. Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Then Job rose and he tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground. And yes, he was grieving. But what did he do? And worshipped. And then he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knows God is sovereign and he willingly submits. Even though he may not fully comprehend all the whys, 
he submits. Well, what's Jonah's response to the death of the plant? It's better for me to die than to live. For the third time, Jonah has a fit. Nothing's going his way, and he's just, just kill me. It's not working out for me. Just kill me. The object lesson went right over Jonah's head. He missed it. And while Jonah displays another temper tantrum, God displays has said in in loving kindness. The very characteristic of God that, that, that Jonah hates when it's displayed to the Ninevites, but when he's on the receiving end, he's the recipient of it, he's greatly appreciative of it. Even here, Jonah doesn't get what he asked for. Though some of us may think, especially if we're honest with ourselves, Lord, why don't you just give Jonah what he wants? Or maybe more like what he deserves. But God continues to express loving kindness. I have a question this morning. Have you ever prayed for anything that you wanted and and you didn't get? Or maybe an even more important or greater question, for those who have repented of sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ, how many are thankful that you don't get what you deserve? Maybe you think like me. I'm thankful every day that I don't get what I deserve. Jonah has not learned to fully comprehend or appreciate this truth. Look at chapter verse 9. But, Jonas, but God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? And Jonah's answer was, yes, I am angry enough to die. Jonah reverts to this position of checking out rather than engaging in God's plan. He was upset with the commissioning to to Nineveh at the very beginning, and then he ran. Rather than face God over his act of running, it was, throw me into the sea. He was recommissioned to Nineveh. He did it half-heartedly. The Ninevites repent and God spares them. And he's just, kill me. God engages Jonah and Jonah walks away. He doesn't answer him. God causes the plant to grow. Out of nowhere, he provides shade and it perishes just as quickly the next day and then the hot sun comes out. And Jonah wants to perish too. Jonah continues in his selfishness, in his disobedience, throwing temper tantrum after temper tantrum along the way. In contrast to Jonah, who is the real hero of the story? Well, it's God who continually displays, has said, loving kindness. Jonah misses the object lesson completely. He misses what the plant was there for, leaving God to explain it to him. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You feel sorry about the plant. You did nothing to put it there. It came up quickly. It died quickly. 
See, the Lord was in, in, endeavoring to get Jonah to understand that he did nothing to cause the plant to grow. It, it, it came to life to provide him a benefit, and then it died just as quickly. Jonah didn't have a stake in it at all, but yet he felt compassion. He felt pity. He was sorry that the plant was gone. Granted, it was more to do with he was sorry for the loss of the benefit the plant provided. But nonetheless, at some level, Jonah was moved over the loss of this plant. Rather than than fight Jonah over his misplaced compassion, God continues with the lesson in verse 11. And should I not pity? So Jonah pities about the plant. And God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is another place where people major on the minor. The phrase, not knowing the right hand from the left, it could mean children, so it could be saying, oh, there's 120,000 young, innocent children there. Or it could just mean people who did not know right from wrong. They, did, they didn't know what was right and wrong. But, but nonetheless, the concept is this. The point isn't the number. The point is, should God not show care for these individual souls? For, for these humans that bear the image of God. They're image bearers of God, each one of them. Just like Jonah is. Just like you are. Just like I am. Image bearers of God. Yet Jonah, what was Jonah's concern? He had a greater concern for the plant that grew up, gave him shade, and then died so quickly. He did not have a concern for the people of Nineveh. One other side point, just so we don't run down this rabbit hole. The last three words of the book, also much cattle. I think it's a a reference. It could be one of two things. One is it could be a reference to the preservation of a system to feed and clothe the people of Nineveh. I, I know it's not a call to activism for animal welfare. But it also could be a hint at Jonah's inverted scales, his inverted scales of value and what justice is. Uh, Shelter and plants take precedence over animals and humans. A number of you might be familiar with the late uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. He summed up the object lesson this way. Jonah, a gourd is nothing. My friend, I I hate to say this, but a pussycat is nothing. I can hear this in his, his southern drawl. A little dog is nothing. But a human soul that is either going to heaven or hell, God said, I love that. I love the lost. And I want you to go to them. That is what he is saying to Jonah. I love the Ninevites. Jonah's actions were driven by hate. Inflated by... uh, Sorry. with an inflated view of self, which can be a dangerous combination. And these attitudes blinded Jonah to the fact that the citizens of Nineveh were created in the image of God too, just like him. 
And appropriately, the book ends on a cliffhanger. Jonah never answers the question. Rather, the question stands for all time, for each of us to answer. Does hate blind us? Does it blind us too? Do our lives, are they so focused on us and and center around our own needs that we miss what's happening in the lives of people around us? I really believe that my years embedded among social workers and community counselors exposed me to my own judgmental attitudes. Well, I'll still shake my head what people will do when they get themselves in a mess financially. But I've learned to think, you know what? For the grace of God, there go I. And here's the tricky part. For you and I as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, sin is sin. You can name whatever sin you want. But somehow, I need to be a giver of grace to the person not a conduit of final judgment. I understand that there are other scriptures that can nuance what I'm saying here. But in the end, the culture to which God has placed us in is no more or no less lost and separated from God and from the same culture, type of culture that Jonah was sent to by the Lord. Jonah was blinded to their lostness. And he elevated himself above them. He was sort of playing this game of, well, I'm not as bad as they are. And unfortunately, it's a game that people can play from time to time. Well, I'm not quite as bad as they are, so so I'm okay. I deserve the grace. They don't. You and I are called to live above that. I I, I wish I I could give more guidance. I'm still trying to figure this out. But I have a neighbor across the road. She's she's a wonderful neighbor. She's been in Canada for about 15 years. Marge and I get along well with them. We've been over for dinner. Uh, Her boyfriend lives with her. He doesn't live in London, but he lives at her house part-time. And uh, they're nice people. But even in that niceness, Scripture is clear. Sexual relationships before marriage are wrong. But I must respond in mercy, in grace, and in loving kindness. However, at the same time, I know for them to come to faith means that they need to understand sin. Not just the sexual sin, But they need to understand sin overall. That anything living contrary to God's ways is sin. And out of that sin, they need to have a clear understanding to bring bring themselves to repentance. I'll admit it's tough. And each one of us faces similar situations each and every day. In our worlds. In our Ninevehs. So our prayer needs to be for guidance. Guidance on how each of us can witness to our world. Both to be bold and sensitive at the same time. That we can proclaim the good news effectively. So people understand sin is sin and it needs to be repented of 
but they can also sense our love and our care for them at the same time. And I'm not saying that's easy. And we need to pray for one another that as we go about our lives each and every day and as we come into contact with people that don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that we can express and show and be a conduit of love and not of final judgment. That's up to God. So we need to express love and kindness and grace and somehow also be able to show them that they are a sinner bound for hell and they need to come to repentance. We need to pray for each other. That's not an easy task. God has to convict through the Holy Spirit, but He's chosen you and I to be the messengers as He chose Jonah to go to Nineveh He's chosen you to go to Forest or Wyoming or London, wherever you live and wherever you walk. You are the messenger of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are responsible to take that message. God's responsible for the rest, but we need to do our part. Because we're invited to be part of this wonderful plan of seeing people come in repentance And when someone responds, the joy that comes to you, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you've ever led anyone through the Scripture and they've come to faith in Christ and repented, you'll know the joy that that is. And if you've never done that, I pray that God gives you the opportunity. It's so joyful to see someone come to faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness. Father, we thank you that you've given us the task of being messengers for you. What a privilege to take the message to those lost around the world, but also what a responsibility. Father, we thank you that you're a God that's loving and kind. And Father, that we can see that you don't easily give up on us and that you've been merciful and kind to mankind from the very beginning. So Father, I pray this morning for each of us here that as we go about in our world that we will open our eyes to those that are in need, those that are lost, and understand that if not for the grace of God, There each of us goes. And Father, that we will want to share that grace and mercy that's been extended to us. That others might be able to share in the joy that it is to have a relationship with the Creator. That others might understand what it means, what the cross means, and that on the cross, you paid the debt, you paid for our sins and the joy that we can have in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. So we pray for one another that we will continually be faithful messengers. And Father, that you'll give us wisdom as we work and speak and journey life together with those that you have set around us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.